you're hearing this episode on the Really True Fiction feed, I just want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul won't always appear here. If you're enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts. Have a great day, and may the Force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. Hello, you found the liberals. So welcome to part two on my insight or take on the 2019 book by Adam Gopnik called A Thousand Small Sanities, The Moral Adventure of Liberalism. In part one, I talked about the intro of this book and the first section, I guess, the Rhinoceros Manifesto which if you've listened to part one will make sense. If you haven't, it will not. (laughs) And I also explicated the reason why I wanted to do this book in this podcast. And so short version, this book I think is such a great distillation and approximate cause of why I'm interested in talking about liberalism again. And it really fed into a kind of desire to talk about the liberal soul and what the liberal soul could be and what it means and why I think it's important to revivify in our culture again, as I think it is in every generation. Because one of the points I make in part one, well, I don't make, I kind of mediate through Gopnik's book, is that these liberal principles are not given or taken for granted. And I'll talk a bit more about that today. And they're actually not the norm in human Uh, history, but the aberration. And so they need to be defended and fought for and talked about cogently. And I might add, (laughs) and this is in the book, so I might as well quote it real quick, because I think this is like the heart of the issue. Uh, Gopnik, nothing's more central to the liberal ideal than a belief in debate, a belief that airing differences actually gets you somewhere new. That is all pretty modern I mean, it obviously has traces in some parts of historical Athens and a few other places, but it's not very common, and it's not easy to come by. So if you want to kind of listen to the beginning and groundwork of all of these things, I'd recommend listening to episode one. In this episode, though, I am going to be talking about two sections of the book that are interesting to read, because... This is on balance a kind of political philosophy book, even though I think that there are the the reason to be liberal minded, as Gopnik points out, is so that you can live a life uh, away from the laws and you can discover what it is to be alive. So he's got two sections in the book. He's talking about different political sides of the aisle here. And so it's why the right hates liberalism and why the left hates liberalism. (laughs) So uh, I'm going to be starting today talking about the section on why the right wing 
um, which is more conservative, uh, the conservative side of the political aisle, why the conservatives or the right wing hates liberalism. So the first thing to keep in mind is that invariably what people on the right side of the aisle talk about as being important in society, according to Gopnik, but also I see it quite true. Here's a quote, Gopnik. Indeed, the primary argument is simple and compelling. The most important need human beings have is for order. Order not merely in their daily lives, but in their world. Without order, everything collapses. The order may come down from God and be, in quotations, natural, or it may be artificial and made up, but it is essential. Liberalism, with its emphasis on reform, is an instrument of rapid change, the conservative says. And change disorders order. Change risks order. And then only later realizes that the loss of order has cost ordinary people. Order does not just mean obedience to authority, although at times it does mean accepting a subordinate role for ourselves or for the good of everyone else. Order means disciplining our desires in ways that liberals may not always like to assure that social peace can continue. It may mean sometimes keeping quiet about our deepest beliefs rather than risk starting a civil war. It might require avoiding conflict at all costs, even when we think we are right. Now, I am of the very liberal temperament, I suppose, that I think that there is a lot of truth in that. I, I definitely think that revolutionary spirit can be a good thing for change, but it can also be quite destructive, as I think the aftermath of the French Revolution taught us. And so it's not a mistake that one of the main thinkers in the history of conservatism, Edmund Burke, is particularly horrified at that historical phenomenon, the French Revolution. So that's kind of the starting point of why the conservative critique of where the conservative critique of liberalism comes from. A couple of pages later, Gopnik points out, and he differentiates between these constitutional conservatives and the um, more radical conservatives that we might call populists now. And he writes something kind of interesting about constitutional conservatives. And so here's Gopnik. Conservatives in power may want to reduce government in some of its roles, in how we regulate business or workplace safety or the environment, but they invariably increase the power of government in some other roles, taxing for the military or policing immigration or perhaps surreptitiously subsidizing favored energy industries. Nothing could be more of a big government program than the capital punishment that delights so many American conservatives. Indeed, there is nothing that is such an obscene parody of the liberal administrative state as the American way of killing convicts. The poison to be introduced into the veins after they have been strapped down helpless to a gurney must not have passed its due date for fear of an accident. We have to be sure that every paper is stamped correctly, and only then can we kill. Certainly, if the pro-life movement has any serious purpose, and I think it does, it would require a pregnancy police force tracking women and prosecuting doctors for clandestine abortions. That was the policing practice not so very long ago, and it drove abortion, which will always be a fact of human life, underground. So I don't believe the distinction really holds. And then Gopnik goes on. What actually and effectively separates liberals and mainstream conservative parties and politicians seen squarely are certain ideas about respect and certain rituals of reverence, particularly respect for the military and reverence for religion. This is the outward show of order. So what strikes me when I read that is that the main difference between conservatives and liberals is a very temperamental one. I would not be surprised if this could come down to something as basic, I guess, as a difference in personality type, where a liberal temperament is probably higher in openness to new experience and 
maybe slightly lower in conscientiousness. And I think the reverse would be true in a more conservative type person. And this is where an informed opinion from Jonathan Haidt, I think, is really useful as well in his moral foundations theory in that liberal temperaments are concerned with harm and fairness, and so are conservatives. But conservatives also have an additional, I think it's sanctity or sacredness. Oh, shit. I can't remember. There's a couple other ones. And so that reverence and respect for the outward show of order is a lot more important to conservatives than it is to liberals, which is a temperamental difference again. And so I think that that's one of the reasons why people right of center don't enjoy liberalism is because it's indicative of that more irreverent take on the uh, that outward show of social order where <laughs> I can speak for myself. I roll my eyes at pomp and ceremony harder than I could roll them if they were paradise. <laughs> so that's kind of his basic rebut, I guess, to constitutional conservatives is that they're not as small government as they claim, and their real difference is much more temperamental, which again, we adjudicate through debate, which was the original point of the beginning of this episode, as well as the original point from John Stuart Mill anyway. So <laughs> that's how we solve our differences on policy, certainly, and that's something a constitutional conservative would be more interested in. So then there's also what he calls the authoritarian conservatives, and he has three different types of them, a triumphant, a theological, and a tragic authoritarian. The triumphantal is the kind of more grandiose, Trump-esque, populist-esque, like beating their chest, we're the best, fuck you kind of thing. Theological authoritarians are what we might throughout history have called the religious castes of priests and people who look down their nose because they know that they have God on their side, as well as the tragic authoritarians who say there's no better, there's no, there actually is no way to improve human life. What's interesting to note is where conservatives and liberals agree, uh, the liberal I'm talking about, not how Americans would use the word liberal, which would just mean uh, leftist or whatever term you want to use there that I don't think is liberal, but whatever. The thing that conservatives and liberals would have in common is that I think that at least from my point of view, we both have a tragic sense of life in that we're born into a losing struggle, like I said in the last episode, and it's hard. And it's really, it's a big uphill battle. And I think the theological authoritarian system of thought would say, yeah, and the only way we can improve it is to give it up to a supernatural being like a god, which has its own problems. I recommend you listen to my conversation with my friend Cole Kander on that one. And then the tragic authoritarian might say, well, they're, because of this tragedy of human existence and, and how hard it is and the suffering and the pain and the disease and the pestilence and the famine, there's nothing to do. We just wash our hands and we maintain order. Whereas the liberal says, well, no, yes, I agree. We are in this losing struggle, but we can still, through human action, make slight and incremental improvements over time. And that's the big difference. And one of the things that is really interesting to note, I want to read out what Gopnik writes about this because I think it's really interesting. So he's just talked about these different groups. And then he writes, Gopnik. At this point, it's conventional to put in a few warning words about the causes of the recent rise of populism and gangster-style authoritarianism in Europe and America. Uh, this is Luke again, reminding you that this book was published in 2019. Back to Gopnik. But the simpler and scarier and more important truth is that one or another kind of triumphalist, which is the grandiose chest-thumping, form of authoritarian has been the default condition of government for almost all of human history. A king or boss or chieftain comes to power through success in war. 
or inherits power from some ancestor who won his war or finds a demagogue's way to power. This is not a special feature of one era or another. Strongman politics and bossman rule in simplest form is the story of humankind. So rather than search for the special circumstances that make it rise, um, such as economic anxiety, racial prejudice, we should accept the truth that it can always rise, that the lure of a closed authoritarian society is one permanently present in human affairs, and that the real question is not what makes it happen, but what, for brief periods of historical time, has kept it from happening. My claim, and I think what Gopnik is saying here too, is that it's actually liberal institutions, the liberal mindset, and the liberal idea of freedom for people, even the low ones at the bottom, deserve voices too. And I guess what Gopnik's writing there is a little bit more of a of a reality check for our culture. When someone like Donald Trump can come to power, that's not the the strange thing in history. Someone like Trump or a strongman rising to power is the norm in human history. And just because it hasn't happened, you know, for us in the West, Canada, USA for a while, I think we're lured into our false sense of outrage (laughs) when that kind of thing happens. And talking about why Trump came to power is a whole different can of worms to which would be a great conversation, which I'm sure I'll have some other time. But I think the wrong reaction is consternation and outrage that this could possibly happen and then just blaming all of the other citizens of our country for making it happen as it's kind of the norm in history history is bloody and terrible history is tragedy as as one of my great prometheans christopher hitchens said it one of the imperatives of our time is for all of us to understand that history is so awful grow up a little bit and deal with it. I think that would go a long way into helping us understand why some things are, are are creeping back into our time from historical periods where we thought maybe we grew past them. But I think that's a little bit of the hubris of becoming um, uncertain in your own truths to uh, go back to uh, On Liberty by John Stuart Mill. Anyway, so one of the great things... So, there's a there's a long section here where Gopnik talks about all the different kinds of authoritarians that have come, so they're like historical examples. On page 130, he really strikes at a philosophical thing that I resonated with as soon as I read it and, and thought about it. So here is what he writes. Whenever you look at a group with secure, secure clan identity, which as a parenthesis is what strongman or triumphalist authoritarian or even theological authoritarians want to insist from a right-wing perspective. Whenever you look at a group with secure clan identity, there's always conformity and a radical course of culling out those who don't belong. The idea of an organic, traditional, closed community is unreal because it takes the inevitable fact of human variation and tries to liquidate it. It's not as though such communities once predominated and were then killed off by modern liberalism. Ancient and medieval cities could often achieve a high practice of coexistence. In Jerusalem, around 1,000, uh, so like 1,000 years ago, as a recent show of the Metropolitan Museum showed beautifully, a thriving mix of trade and commerce among Jews, Christians, and Muslims went on more than fitfully. It's not that hard to find a practice of cosmopolitanism, even in the things that hold our daily wine. Christian gospels written in Arabic hands... Hebrew inscriptions on Islamic astrolabes, above all the confounding of markets and merchandise. The whole end of liberalism is to turn the human habit of coexistence into a principle of pluralism, one that mediates crises between communities instead of surrendering to mutual murder among them. Yet, this all ended in massacre and counter-massacre. So, here's Gopnik articulating what the liberal reply to 
communitarian complaints about clan and identity from a right-wing point of view. Gopnik. This is, I think, the central liberal reply to the communitarian complaint as it comes at us from conservative politicians and philosophers. Liberalism actually builds and reinforces common bonds as much as any political practice can. Indeed, it depends on them. But it also recognizes the truth that a closed or clan or ethnic society invariably either can't be realized or that, if we try to realize it, doing so involves coercion on a scale that makes the enforced assertion of a common identity far crueler than its erasure. There are no people like us. As soon as we are surrounded by people like us, we start seeing how much unlike us some of them are, and the cycle of exclusion and excommunication begins again. The liberal also knows that even the most fixed and belligerent categories of identity turn out to be mutable. We can see how much the concept of white people has expanded to include Jews and Irish Catholics, who were at various recent points seen as mortal enemies of whiteness, not merely not white, but anti-white. The same process can also happen in reverse. The alt-right in America wants to once again excommunicate Jews from their recently acquired whiteness. And we've already seen how the Trump administration is de-Americanizing the Hispanics, who a brief while ago were seen as the bellwether of new Americanness. The excommunications among the people like us crowd never end. <laughs> and that kind of gets at the heart of what I noticed myself uh, as a young person growing up in what I guess now I would call conservative circles. I grew up in a church. My family was religious. And... There were just so many arguments between people in the church. So it's like there, there is no such thing as an identifiable human group that is immutable. There will always be people coming and going, people who fit in the group and then people who don't fit in the group, as Gopnik's point on how Jews and Irish Catholics used to be the anti-whiteness of American culture at one point in time. This is uh, really useful because I remember that this this is kind of how the abuse of the minds of young people in these more closed societies or closed cultures works, is that when there is no cosmopolitanism, it's really hard for a young person to understand that the things that they might be feeling different from the people around them aren't wrong. So... I know I didn't suffer from this nearly as bad as a lot of other people did, but it's very easy growing up in a Christian household to feel like your desire to like certain movies or like, especially like the, so you get a little older, like the way girls look in certain forms of clothing or that you could appreciate some sort of comedian, some sort of style of comedy. These things get very much filtered out and shut down. And so even though I'm in the in-group if I express any of my individualism and in being interested in these things, those things get quickly shut down because they are seen from the in-group as a threat to the in-group. So there's like, <laughs> once you take away the out-group the out enemy, the in-group splinters to find more in-group enemies that can then become the out-group enemy because this is human nature. I mean, I think there's anthropological evidence around like how many people can actually be in a human society before uh, different strongmen rise up and then schisms happen. Which is why I think the uh, invention of the rule of law and the democratic rule of law is such a minimizer of human violence. If you want to read Steven Pinker's book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined, it's just never-ending data and empiricism on how this is true. And there's a lot more to say there. I'd love to talk about it with someone sometime. It's a little bit harder to explicate in a solo episode because I'd have to remember specific times and those come better when someone's talking to me about them. But I really resonated with that point of um, culling of those who don't belong in any group identity. There's always excommunication for the misfits, for the misfits once order is restored. And then 
the last kind of main point that Gopnik makes in uh, Why the Right Hates Liberalism is, and here's Gopnik. If you placed medieval France alongside contemporary France, there's no doubt about which way the refugees would be running. Knowledge won't grow in such strongman societies, and even the simplest kinds of prosperity are always endangered by corruption and clan-centered dealings. There's nothing weaker than a strongman state, even when there's nothing louder than the strongman. And I like this, like knowledge, you just can't grow knowledge. This is a point I made with David when we did On Liberty. Strongman states that censor rational and outward debate of freedom of opinion get stupid and they don't grow and then they don't get resources and people starve. This is why debate is so crucial. Debate isn't just crucial for the inward soul of a person, although it is that too, and that alone would, would warrant it being a principle. But also, it makes your society stupid and corrupt without it. And a strongman hates debate because the very first thing anyone with a brain notices in a strongman society is how weak and bloated and full of pomp the strongman is. This is why... The most intelligent people are always the first to go in closed societies and authoritarian ones. The first ones to say the emperor is wearing no clothing are the danger. The last thing I read on the section of why the right hates liberalism, which is a great little thing. I love this. So this is on page 137. Gopnik. One often reads in religious-minded polemics about the totalitarian nature of liberalism and the nihilism of the liberal ethic. It's perfectly true that liberalism is not neutral and that it has a metaphysics of its own. But this metaphysics is not a weak, surreptitious alternative to that of faith, but it is rather its knowing opposite. The hidden metaphysics of liberalism is simply that it values debate and hates dogma and accepts doubleness. If you do not want to have your dogma put up for debate, the liberal state will be an uncomfortable place to live within. I'm going to read that again because I think that this is so crucial. This is what I mean by hard-nosed liberalism. If you do not want to have your dogma put up for debate, the liberal state will be an uncomfortable place to live within. Whether the dogma be Catholic, Protestant, intersectional, ideological, communist, Marxist, or anarchist, if you do not want it debated, you will not like liberal societies. And I think fundamentally this is why ideologues hate liberals more than they hate other ideologues is because the authoritarian on the right, the authoritarian cardinal or Catholic leader can see something in the authoritarian Marxist that they can relate to. They can see the thing that they also love to want to accomplish, which is the domination of other people physically and mentally. And the reason why the vitriol is thrown at the liberal is that the liberal is the one who says to both those people, prove it. Do your best. Why is your point better than mine? And we'll have an open discussion of this. So you'll notice censorship is always the tool of the dogmatist and never the tool of the liberty-minded person. And as a historical parenthesis on that, interestingly, we're living in an era where, since I do think, at least in North America in 2021, the cultural hegemony, that is the hegemony through media, Hollywood, corporate America, and even politics to a certain degree right now, or at least what they call political messaging, I think because that is so much on the side of a more left of center political agenda at this stage in time, it's interesting to note how it is more conservative people who are interested in the principle of 
free speech and freedom of opinion and open debate. Now, I give kudos to any person who trumpets that principle at any time, but I can't help but notice that in the 90s when I was growing up, almost all of the cultural hegemony was still in the kind of evangelical Protestant conservative section of media. And so it was all of the it was it was much more a concerted conservative attempt to censor things like South Park or The Simpsons or TV shows and movies in the 90s whereas censorship in the modern day comes from a more uh, leftist or ideologically left thing so I give a half credit to modern conservatives who are passionately interested in free speech and free principle um, I'll just be interested to see their opinions when the pendulum swings and there's a more there's a backlash against this backlash which is pretty common in the sociological history of humankind so that is why the right hates liberalism now let's see why does the left hate liberalism the left according to gopnik gopnik points out that the right doesn't trust the liberals over or what they consider the liberal over reliance on reason and the left doesn't believe in the liberal over reliance or perceived over reliance on reform they would prefer revolution over reform gopnik points out that there's like a more complicated relationship between leftists and liberals but here he writes in historical context gopnik then in the early 19th century people called liberals were distinct from those called radicals or socialists because liberals were still as they are to this day in the French sense of the term, above all aligned with the free market against state control. But this was far from a neat liberal or conservative placement in our sense either, since being aligned with the free market meant being against the aristocratic oligarchy and its monopolies. This is what made Adam Smith a hero to one whole wing of the French revolutionary movement. Being a liberal didn't mean aligning in consolidation with power, but protesting power in the interests of the entrepreneurial middle class. So there, this is this is a historical point that I think is important, and I'm definitely not an expert in, so I think it would be interesting to talk to someone who is an expert in this kind of thing, but someone like Adam Smith or the birth of what we would call free markets in the history of Western civilization, at the very least, uh, or like the Enlightenment, let's say. Adam Smith is the foremost name that comes out when it, when we think of markets from the Enlightenment. Markets, free markets didn't arise out of a necessarily politically conservative push. They arose as a bolstering up an entrepreneurial middle class against the kind of monopolistic oligarchies and aristocracies of people with power. So very much the original innovation in markets came against the protests probably of what we would now call conservatives most likely people who had power who like certainly monarchies but also aristocrats so free markets in their inception were a very liberal-minded project and not even just like i mean that technically in the sense that adam smith was quite a liberal for his time so i think that's an interesting beginning is that free markets were at one point a liberal invention which i think is a distinction in the modern sense between a liberal and a leftist is that I think the markets do amazing things for what they can do. And obviously left unchecked, they can be horrible and they do terrible things to us. But capitalism is not merely exploitation and it's also not merely unadulterated good. But I do like the fact that I can have 
electricity in my house and internet at a cheap price and that I can have a phone that allows me to contact friends and then I can buy a cheap car to get around and that I can get access to books from all over the world from all sorts of different thinkers and writers to enhance my mental life at relatively cheap prices and that I can get fruit at the store. And all of these things are possible because of markets. And so I think that that's a major difference between what we now call liberals and leftists. <laughs> My guess is for the unreflect, certainly the unreflected leftist, I don't think the attachment to the market can be forgiven <laughs> for the, us poor liberals, but I'm not complaining. So one of the things that Gopnik also points out is this concept of ghost Marxism. And I think it's really interesting. I had never heard of it before, but it's a bit of a longer section, but I'm going to read it out. Gopnik. To begin with, economic issues peculiar to capitalism have to be separated from those pervasive in modernity. When, for instance, contemporary leftists treat the environmental disasters that frighten us all as capitalism's war against the planet, or worse, of neoliberalism against the planet, they are engaged in a campaign that is, from a historical point of view, absurd. Environmental disasters are the right thing to be worried about, but it is the drive for growth, not capitalism in particular, that makes them happen. The degree and level of environmental disaster caused by the command economics of Eastern Europe were far greater than even the worst known in Western Europe, and was made still worse by a state-controlled media that could not even wave a feeble flag of dissent. What happened to Lake Bacall under the Soviets never happened to an American Great Lake. The villain in our environmental disasters may well be the common fault of modernity and of industrialization, but to understand pollution as a problem owed to capitalism is to understand nothing. This is ghost Marxism, a will to repeat the same old curses and haunt the same old houses without having the confidence to go outside and see the world as it really is. Which leads into another point that Gopnik makes is that the leftist ideology is very much based on determinism. Here's what he writes about that. This inability to see things as they exist is only intensified by those intimidating sound habits of essentialism and determinism. Determinism is the belief that an insidious hegemonic network of enforced linguistic habits and instilled prejudices in our culture blind us from seeing the true nature of power relationships. Not just slant us or partly shape our responses, but really blind us. Prevent us from seeing how the oppressed get oppressed. We can't see past the categories of our traditions or hear past the stereotypes of our language. Now, obviously, these traps must be among the weakest ever devised by man, since they can apparently be dispelled by a semester in a decent progressive high school. The idea, for instance, that language creates a trap for our cognition or puts a straitjacket on it, forces us into one worldview or another, is one of the oldest and most frequently if futilely, dispelled of modern ideas. Gopnik continues, The argument over pronouns is a good example of the tendency on the left to turn a question of courtesy into a question of cognition. This argument runs that using masculine pronouns in preference to feminine ones for collective nouns, as has been the rule in English for centuries, is inherently sexist and helps shapes our mind in a patriarchal direction. We should use her and hers in preference to him and his and allow people to invent their own pronouns to opt out of any gender-based hierarchy. Now, as a matter of courtesy, we should indeed always respect other people's pronouns as we should respect their proper nouns. What someone wishes to be called is what they ought to be called. As a matter of cognitive fact, however, we should not think that any words, including pronouns, can compel thoughts we don't want to have. The system of genders in French, for instance, where every object in the world is either masculine or feminine, does not in any discernible way alter the realities or challenge the feminism in that country or language. Simone de Beauvoir wrote in the same gendered French as her backward contemporaries. <laughs> A whole industry may exist to coerce and conceal. 
But an equally large social practice also exists to reveal the absurdities of it all. We call it conversation and particularly comedy. It's hard not to know what's going on. We may not be able to change it, but we know it. Blindness is, to our circumstances is not really a problem. And then in parentheses, he adds, Noam Chomsky, a family hero, insists that our consent is manipulated and our free speech controlled. But no one on earth has had less trouble being fully and comprehensibly heard than Noam Chomsky. What he is not is universally agreed with, which is a very different thing. So yeah, that whole section, I know that's a long section, but that's something that I think is a, philo- a major philosophical difference. I guess maybe if there's, um, now that I'm thinking about it, if, there's a, if the main difference between liberals and conservatives is temperamental, I think the main difference between leftists and liberals is logical or philosophical in the sense that I don't buy the determinism that is preached to me about my or any other liberal-minded person's inability to know what's going on. Now, of course, the um, rejoinder that can come back is that I'm so deeply entrenched and I have so internalized the norms of my culture that I can't even understand them. And I just, I'd say two things. I don't think that's true because I have read people on the left who I think make some good points and some not good points. So I think that I can discern between different points made. And the second thing I would say is that, well, even if that were true, it's deterministic anyway. So why are you telling me this to try and change it? If determinate, this is, this is a gap in the logic I find in leftist thinking is that if the determinism is so strong, then why are you even trying to convince me to be changed, which I guess maybe they could say, well, that's what revolution is for. And then I think we get back to the reality question of like, well, your <laughs> there's more in the world than dreamed of in your philosophies, right? Like people die from these revolutions that have been, you that have been left-wing perpetrated throughout history at a rate that is pretty astounding and not very well known in our cultures. And so, I mean, we can get into the weeds here of these of these philosophical terms, but I find my disagreement, to go back, my disagreement with conservative-minded people is that I just think that they're too closed off to new experiences in the world because of their conceptions of order. And that's a temperament thing. I think leftists are too rigid in their ideologies based on faulty premises from logic, which is not as exciting, I guess, but they can make some pretty deep rifts in disagreements. Because the other main one that I I have to talk about is called essentialism or anti-essentialism. So, Gopnik. A fair criticism of the contemporary left is that it is as as essentialist as it needs to be at some moments, and then as wildly anti-essentialist as possible at immediately adjacent ones. Studying the left-wing attack on liberalism, we find a map of what might be called opportunistic essentialism. Kids are taught in progressive schools that all gender is fluid and constructed, except for that of transgender kids, which is an absolute and essential feature, locked in early, never to be questioned. All racial groups are constructions too, except for that of whiteness, which can be rightly treated as an undifferentiated actual thing, in essence shared by its holders that warps their views and disables their thinking. This belief is held, even though the range and late arrival of participants in whiteness are the best possible demonstration that no racial essence ever exists. We see this ambiguity in the over-publicized, contested cases. Someone claims to be Jewish who has a Jewish father or mother. Someone claims to be black who, well, wants to be. 
We can insist with the rabbis that there's a blood definition of Jewish, or we can insist with the humanists that there isn't, but we can't insist on both at the same time. This is far from an abstract or academic argument. It has everything to do with how we think and talk about freedom and authority in our daily conversation. Essentialism tells us always to ask for the authority behind an idea or to demand the true origin of a person. What is she really? It makes us ask. Who said it? Where does it or her come from? When the questions we should be asking are, what relation does that being said have to do with what actually happens? Or more simply, is that true? The idea that one should trace the source of an argument backward to its origins, rather than play it forward to the evidence for its claims is the root doctrine of reaction. I have tried in these pages to be skeptical about tying liberalism and science too tightly together. Liberalism preceded modern science and humanism preceded both. And liberalism does not demand in any way an exclusive commitment to materialism. It is perfectly possible to be a liberal Catholic or a liberal agnostic or a liberal rabbi. But anti-essentialism is exactly the place where the scientific turn of mind and the liberal turn of mind really do meet in a common anti-authoritarianism. All that the empirical sciences have given us rests on this radically new belief that an idea is best evaluated by never asking who thought it up and by what authority they had to think it, but by asking what facts support it and what facts might prove it false. I think this is my personal biggest reason why I'm not a leftist or philosophically this is resonant with me the most. What we call identity politics, this is such a poisonous intellectual maneuver because it makes what someone says essential to their themselves as opposed to is it true anti-essentialism is anti-authoritarianism now there's lots that you can i recommend reading richard dawkins book the greatest show on earth he does a great job of dismantling essentialism when he talks about the kind of lineage of rabbits in the sense that there's no essential rabbit because if you go back through the lineage of rabbits you never get a first rabbit and there's no way to pick Uh, add any animal there essentialism comes from plato Karl popper's book the open society and its enemies does a really good job of taking down so i don't i don't want to go through the full of it here but this idea in social life that who said it is more important than what is said that logic if applied to hitler would mean that vegetarianism is out as an authentic moral or philosophical category to be debated because since Hitler was a vegetarian, ipso facto vegetarianism is immoral. Well, it's nonsense. (laughs) Hitler could have been right about vegetarianism and wrong about everything else, and that's perfectly consistent with the liberal mindset, but in this opportunistically essentialist sense, not with the leftist. And so I know in the, I think it was in the 60s, Marsha McLuhan once said the medium is the message with the rise of television and then and, and new media. And I've noticed something in the modern age. The little tweak on that we could put is that in 2021 or, or you know, our era, you might as well say the messenger is the message. And the liberal remark to that is as concise as it is unassuming uh no the messenger is not the message the message is the message and if you can't see past the messenger for the message that is an intellectual hang-up that i think you need to work on so that's what the distinction being made there between essentialism and anti-essentialism which is very much in the liberal tradition and then this is a, a funny example that he points out is that the nazis had a concept of jewish physics because einstein came up with the theory of relativity and so obviously you can't have a jewish person making that sort of contribution to science so they had to slander it into jewish physics well 
this is just a category error. This is this is a mental poison. A couple lines that Gopnik uses: an obsession with difference has a way of producing otherness with extraordinary speed and venom. So. Uh, the liberal focuses on what unites humanity and makes us similar. And I think, unfortunately, one of the hallmarks of a leftist is they focus on what makes us different and can separate us. And I just think that that is going to be an approach that always ends in disaster and heartache and pain. And uh, to finish this thought, Gopnik writes, anti-essentialism is the universal solvent of illiberal thought. So then... Just a couple last things to say on the left, why the left hates liberals. And that's on the difference between the liberal and the leftist conception of free speech. Gopnik, thinking about public arguments and public debate leads us, there's no escaping it, to another stormy issue, that of free speech and its discontents. There's no issue on which liberals and leftists still disagree more profoundly than on the issue of how free speech is and how it ought to be. The liberal view of free speech comes down to us from that bedrock document on liberty from John Stuart Mill. When it comes to free speech, Mill wants us to ask something simple. Is this practice causing me any real harm? Not potential harm to my feelings, not social harm to my idea of right, not damage to the great precepts of religion or to my stuffy uncle's sense of propriety or to my inner sense of safety. Unless the speaker is actually about to cut your throat, you have to let them work their jaw. Mill knew that questions not decidable by proof were still amenable to arguments. The authoritarian position is not the strongest one, but merely the most frightened. Nothing is worse for being looked at. No idea is good enough to exist unopposed. For liberals, free speech is a nearly sacrosanct principle and should be curbed only at the absolute extreme. For the left, on the other hand, free speech is always a subject of power and its invocation frequently a mask for it. The liberal assertion of free speech must never be seen as a value outside the larger context of power. Who gets to speak and how speech is heard and how pained or threatened the listeners to that speech may feel. Mill's idea of free speech is what we now call elitist or class-bound. He assumes a pleasant argument among gentlemen, or at most gentlemen and gentlewomen. He does not adequately imagine the way that speech is bought and sold to keep the persecuted in their place. He does not know what it really feels like to hear hatred directed at your person or your group. Free speech is fine. Freed people are better. Yeah, I think that that's the, one of the major schisms between leftists and liberals is the opinion over free speech. I mean, just temperamentally and I think philosophically, I understand John Stuart Mill's argument. And I think it makes sense. Again, if you are alighting free speech as just another tool of the powerful over the powered, you are inevitably making revolution and, and ultimately violent revolution the only other alternative. As Sam Harris, I think a great modern liberal puts it, we have conversation or we have violence. So this is like a way to think about it. Even if everything a leftist says about free speech is true, it's still preferable to the bloody revolution that's going to come unless we have exhausted. Well, <laughs> again, here's my liberal doubleness going on because I see I can see the truth in my opponent's point as I'm explicating my own. Free speech or freedom of opinion and free debate is how we solve these problems. And everything I've ever heard a leftist say that sounds reasonable to me and worth putting into reform is done through freedom of opinion. The only thing that will be lost in freedom of opinion is unspoken things that a person might want to slip through so that they can get some personal cue bono out of it. Who benefits? They can benefit out of it in some way. And even if you really believe, really believe that our institutions are wholly corrupt and that we can, if we just get rid of the power structure now, we'll have a utopia. The last point Gopnik makes here is that our liberal institutions are hard to build and they're not just organic after a revolution. And I think 
you know, the 20th century. <laughs> What's that? The joke in the book is that conservatives forget about the 19th century and leftists forget about the 20th century. And liberals forget about neither. And I think that that's part of the difference is that we have conversation or we have violence. And I, and I, this is not the book. This is me, Luke, talking. I think the first liberal precept, if we're going to articulate one into social life, is forego violence forever until it is rational self-defense. And where that lands, again, that's part of the endless debate. But without debate, we'll never know, and we will make mistakes. And if the 20th century was anything, it was a series of such heart-wrenching, terrible social mistakes allowed to happen because dictators rose up in leftist regimes and massacred their own peoples. I just did a very flyby take. I still recommend you get this book and read it because he's, he goes into so much more detail than I can. But I think it's really important. So then to sum up both sections, part one and part two, there's a small section at the end of the book called A Thousand Small Sanities and some things that are really important to keep in mind for the liberal soul as we march our way through this maze of life is that we don't ever have any of the answers in advance. We need to test over and over again and be empirical. And the only way to do that honestly and truthfully is through open debate. There can be more than two things true at one time, which is hard to keep in mind, but I think really part of the liberal ability to to be messy in their mind, to hold lots of truths in their mind, to know that every almost every person you come across has a part of the truth in their opinion. It's not just one versus the other. Here was a line that Gopnik wrote, liberals are never arrogant, but never apologetic about what to do. And I like that because I often say, I'm not out to hurt anyone's feelings, and I don't have any intention to hurt anyone's feelings. But because I know that about myself, I'm not really concerned if I do. <laughs> that sounds a little callous. What I mean to say is that I'm talking about the world as I see it. And so I don't have anybody particularly in view, and I'm not out to hurt anyone. The liberal temperament is not out to hurt anyone, but people who get offended through conversations based on what people think are true about the world, I'm sorry, I think that's more on you than on me or the liberal temperament. I don't think it's a liberal precept to apologize for doing the right thing if you think it's the right thing. And then I think I mentioned this in the first episode, but it's worth reemphasizing. We love laws because they give us more time for everything in life non-law-like. And freedom is important because it's the time to discover what it means to be alive. Uh, so that's A Thousand Small Sanities by Adam Gopnik. Again, a book I couldn't recommend more highly. If you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. There's a Facebook page and a uh, Twitter account. You can find us on all major podcasting apps. If you like the show, it'd be really appreciated if you leave a rating and a review. That's the best way to help new people find the show. Thanks again for listening. You found The Liberal Soul. The Liberal Soul.